podcasting world. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me as always, Mr. Cole Swanson. Excuse me, Dr. Cole Swanson. Look at me just changing right the title. I'm all right Mr. Oh, yeah, Mr. Um, and today we have a incredibly special guest coming all the way from across the country. Uh, we have Mr. John Roth, who is the current Chief Executive Officer for the California Pharmacists Association. Mr. Roth, how's it going, sir? Good, Mike and Cole. How are you guys doing? We're doing, doing great. Really well. Glad really to have well. you here. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. So uh, kind of... Looking through your your uh, resume, if you will, it's going to be kind of hard to even pick and choose what we talk about. But um, it looks like you have have done quite a bit, um, both in you know the healthcare clinical settings and also in, in policies and in, uh, legislation and whatnot. Um, can you kind of give us a background? How did you get started um, way back, you know, when you, when you were first an undergrad? Um, did you always know you're going to kind of go into the healthcare field? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, way back is, is getting more real every day. <laughs> uh, but certainly, uh, you know, started off really just uh, had ambitions to go into a business uh, sector work, you know, as, uh, coming out of undergraduate school. But I, I did an internship in a long-term care facility uh, in their human resources department and really kind of got the bug for my healthcare um, experience at that point. And ever since, I've really pr- pursued professional pathways around healthcare. And, and um, uh, it's been really rewarding. You know, I started off in sort of bricks and mortar um, as administrator for a skilled nursing facility here in Sacramento, California, and uh, had a chance to work with our trade association at the time. And uh, from that experience, really discovered sort of what we call the power of the pen, if you will, where we've got you know legislative measures and regulatory measures that control so much of how healthcare is delivered and financed that uh, I really got a passion for that policy bug and have been in that government relations policy world uh, ever since, uh, working for uh, the dentists uh, at the California Dental Association, now with the California Pharmacists Association. That's great. And it, it's really important because, um, you know, pharmacy is a small but ever-growing group. Um, and so sometimes just from a sheer number standpoint, we don't carry as much weight as some of the other medical professions. So we could always use advocates. And uh, we know that you were speaking of that or were um, – uh, pretty important in passing in California what was Senate Bill 493, uh, which essentially more or less granted pharmacist provider status, uh, which I know that there's similar legislation that's being pushed through in uh, many states and even federally. Um, can you tell us a little about that and, and kind of how that came to pass and what that means for pharmacists in California? Yeah, absolutely. So um, back in 2013, you know, we were really looking at the landscape of pharmacy. As you guys know, um, the direction of the profession is changing. Uh, It's no longer just a product-based profession. And uh, the way pharmacists are trained and educated these days really provides opportunity uh, for pharmacists to do more than just safely dispense medicine. And so we really took an opportunity to work in our legislature um, to expand both the scope of practice of pharmacists to, to provide some authorities that had never been authorized previously in law, as well as, as you mentioned, get quote-unquote provider status, because I think as probably most of your listeners know, uh, way back when, when medicine was separated from pharmacy, 
uh, pharmacy and pharmacists were sort of left out, um, were never uh, formally recognized in, in government circles as quote unquote healthcare providers. So um, it was an exciting opportunity to really begin to reposition the, the profession, uh, get pharmacists to uh, be allowed to provide services, clinical services to patients that they'd never been allowed to provide before, um, and really uh, uh, begin to expand their scope to uh, to do what you're trained to do. Yeah, and the, I guess that a lot of that is they're able to bill for certain services that they they weren't necessarily before. Um, do you have any specifics on what you know they're kind of able to do? as opposed to a state where they, where they don't have that legislation passed? Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of the authorities that we were able to uh, get pharmacists recognized for here in California included uh, initiating uh, naloxone, um, smoking cessation, prescription strikes, smoking cessation, uh, hormonal contraception, travel medicines, um, authorize the pharmacist to order labs and interpret those results. Uh, as well as created what we called an advanced practice pharmacist license here in our state, mm -hmm. which uh, has sort of the uh, sort of the ultimate authority to initiate, modify, and discontinue therapy um, under a collaborative practice agreement with um, with another provider. So, uh, a lot of those uh, authorities, you know, are things that pharmacists could have possibly done previously if they had a protocol with a provider. Right. Uh, but now they can do them indiv individually and autonomously, which we think really expands access to care. It does. That's great. So what kind of pushback have you gotten, if any? Um, I know a lot of the the medical community does support pharmacists having more um, autonomy, authority, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there is definitely those who think that, you know, we kind of got to keep the roles where they are. And the, the physician is ultimately um, a much more trained healthcare professional. Have you gotten some of that pushback going through this process? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. And I know on, uh, I think it was your last podcast or previous podcast, you were talking about the Arizona bill that had been passed or was in this process of being passed and right. some of the pushback from the medical community. Um, I also, I'll, I'll be honest that, you know, when we were going through the legislative process, we did get some pushback from the physician community um, because I think it was mostly around a lack of uh, understanding about how well-trained pharmacists were these days under a PharmD program. And when we were able to really uh, provide that education to both policymakers and the physician community, um, I think they really began to then embrace the role that pharmacists could play in being uh, on the team, you know, being partners of theirs and providing that patient care. And it became less about a turf issue. And I think, you know, looking forward now six years since that bill was passed, um, and is being implemented in communities around the, around the state. Um, I think physicians would universally say, my goodness, I don't know what I did without my pharmacist <laughs> that I could refer to for these different services. So all of the uh, hand-wringing at the time uh, from sort of organized medicine, I think, has definitely uh, gone away, and we're in a, a good spot to where pharmacists are really seen as partners in, in helping physicians deliver care. Yeah, it's interesting t with the way the the mindset kind of changes once they realize that we're not there to 
take over and try to, you know, steal their patients or something. Um, I know the clinic that I work for now, I, I was the second uh, clinical pharmacist they had ever used, and the other person was there kind of as a grant. Um, he's actually one of my former mentors and professors. He was there as a grant, and I know he originally had some pushback and then kind of built some trust with the providers. And then when I went in, I kind of got the same idea from a lot of them that they were kind of like, well, why do we need you again? And, uh, but then now that I've kind of yeah. built relationships with them and they see that I'm not there to, I'm there to try to help and make their lives a little bit easier if possible. Um, I, I have a really good relationship and work really well with them now. So it's, it's interesting to see how the dynamic shifts a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a, a great example, Mike, of the kind of stories that we're hearing day over day here in California, um, where you've got, uh, different kinds of providers who are interacting with pharmacists on a regular basis, uh, pharmacists who are, you know, taking over those chronic patients that are sort of just cycling through a physician's office, mm -hmm. you know, week after week and not adherent and not in, in their therapeutic range. And, you know, the, the physicians are really seeing the pharmacists as a safety valve. You know, you're, you're I'm able to refer them over and now they're adherent, they're, you know, in, on target. And uh, so in that way, it's a very positive relationship that's built up. Yeah, and I think it's it's about pharmacists meeting a need because there's the ever-growing need for primary care physicians. And um, so mid-level providers are helping to meet that, nurse practitioners and physician assistants around the country. And pharmacists can, in certain situations, like you mentioned, um, we know a lot about smoking cessation. We know a lot about naloxone. We know a lot about chronic diseases that um, can be managed and what labs to uh, evaluate and how best to... Uh, increase, decrease medications or um, help. We can spend the time to help patients um, to be adherent and to counsel them on the importance of their medications where when PCPs are seeing 20, you know, 20 to 30 patients in a day, um, it's hard for them to take that time and, and um, invest in a patient who is not necessarily the most adherent. Yeah, and, and as we pointed out, I think that's a good point, Cole, that um, that the pharmacist is a medication expert. And I think physicians sort of inherently know that, but I, I don't think they fully appreciate it until they get a chronic patient in the pharmacist hands and they really see the expertise that you can lend to that medication management process. Um, and I think that's where we've seen our biggest home runs is where, um, yeah, Mrs. Jones, who's in my office and is just sort of uh, cycling through, um, when I get her in the hands of the clinical pharmacist, she's um, doing much better and there's no better proof positive for the, for the profession than, than uh, stories like that. And it seems like California is pretty much on the cutting edge as far as um, pharmacists' role in expanding their practice. But So it, I would love for the rest of the country to, to put legislation forward to um, not necessarily fall in line, but to you know, promote the profession. Where do you see it going from here um, in California and elsewhere? Yeah, we were really uh, privileged um, to be uh, really one of the first states to get both a provider status as well as scope expansion uh, in the country back in 2013. And and I'm really pleased to, to, to tell your listeners that, you know, a lot of states, I think it's now 46 or 48 states have done something in that regard. Um, not, not necessarily exactly like we did, of course, each right. state's political dynamics and things are different. But, um, you know, maybe they've passed naloxone legislation or maybe they've done smoking cessation only or things of that nature. So definitely I think the wave is sort of spread, you know, from Sacramento to 
Charleston, South Carolina <laughs> in one form or another. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just been exciting to watch. And we're certainly uh, participating at the federal level with the federal partners on trying to get it done at the congressional level as well. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned an advanced, like uh, advanced practice pharmacist. Um, can you explain what that actually means? Like, what's the definition of that? Is it someone who's had a residency, or someone who's board certified, or how does that? How do you differentiate between that and someone who's just a regular pharmacist in California? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and we get that a lot. So, uh, as we were moving our legislation through, one of the duties that we wanted to authorize pharmacists to have in their a basket of tools, if you will, is the ability to initiate, modify, and discontinue therapy. Um, and because of our um, conversations with the physician community who had some concerns about that, um, we had come to an agreement where we would create a separate licensure category called this advanced practice pharmacist. And basically, there's the pathway is um, uh, uh, one of three criteria. So you either have to be board certified and have had done a residency, or you can complete a certificate program, advanced practice certificate program, and be board certified or a residency. So basically two of the three have to be online, then a pharmacist can apply for that um, uh, advanced practice license. Okay, um, so how long does the certificate process take if someone didn't do a residency? So for me, for example, I didn't. I actually didn't do a residency, but I am now board certified um, in, as a pharmacotherapy specialist. Um, so how, what would I, if I was living in California, what would I have to go through as far as the certificate program? Yeah, so if you're uh, board certified and have done a residency, you would actually qualify right on that basis alone. Um, uh, the residency portion gives you the experiential. So uh, again, it's two of three of the pathways. So board certification and the residency, you would be already qualified to apply for that license. No, I'm sorry. And I probably didn't say it clearly. Um, I, so I did not do a residency. So I'm, oh, I'm, I'm missing that piece of it. So I have to go the certificate route. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the certificate program, uh, we actually produce one here through our association um, that meets the criteria of our Board of Pharmacy. Uh, and it's about 30 hours of online training uh, and then an eight-hour in-person um, skills uh, assessment course uh, that the person would go through. So it's 38 hours in total. Okay. Is it more diagnostic-centered or is it still like pharmacotherapy? No, that you're spot on. It's very much more diagnostic. So it's doing things such as patient assessment and um, really hands-on uh, assessing of various conditions and, and uh, uh, presentations that a patient would come to the pharmacy with. Um, we assume, and I think the, the Board of Pharmacy and legislature assume that, that all pharmacists have got the pharmacotherapy down. <laughs> right. That's what you do best. Uh, but it's more on that uh, assessment side, uh, putting hands on patient, depending on the service you're providing and or screening them uh, to ensure that they're uh, able to um, be eligible for whatever service that they're there to see you for. Gotcha. So is someone who's not a resident of California able to take that course just for fun, so to speak? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we don't have any borders around the course, that's for sure. Um, for the license, obviously, you'd have to be a licensed California pharmacist, but right. to take the certificate program to get that uh, more assessment-based uh, skill set, um, everybody would be welcome to do that. 
Um, where yeah. would somebody go? Because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in doing it myself. I was going to say, I have a feeling Mike's probably going to have the whole thing done by next week now. So. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, where would somebody say, in case somebody's listening, they just want to do it to get ahead of it? Because eventually it, it'll go that route here, too. So we may just be 10 years behind. But um, where would they go to get more information about that? Yeah, great question. So um, you can go to cpha.com. And on our website, there is, um, you'll see a tab for the advanced practice pharmacist under continuing education programs. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's cool. I'm going yeah. to it right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's already on there. He's already working on it. it sounds awesome. Uh, so as far as getting that getting that through and, and, and instituting that, we talked a little bit about some physician pushback and things. But what other, what other obstacles or challenges did you guys face that other states might face um, in instituting similar legislation? And what advice would you have for them going forward? So one of the issues that we faced um, that was very significant was funding and paying pharmacists who were authorized to do these services. Because, of course, you know, scope of practice without payment is just, you know, scope of practice. It doesn't really mean anything because it's not sustainable to implement in a pharmacy um, and or as a consulting pharmacist. So, um, you know, we have to remember that at the time we were coming out of, you know, the Great Recession. Uh, this is back in 2013. Um, all of our state budgets were, were, you know, pretty hunkered down in terms of spending. And so um, from a political standpoint, we really had to make a decision. And that was, do we go ahead with the provider status and scope of practice without payment for those services? Or do we just wait for a future date and run it all at once? So we decided to move forward with the scope of practice and the provider status at the time, knowing we would circle back when times were better and uh, secure the payment. So in 2015, we actually sponsored a separate legislative bill that authorizes our Medicaid program to pay pharmacists for all of these services. And that's literally just beginning uh, to get implemented now. So I suppose they would, you would need that, you know, quote unquote provider status on the books to be able to to say, hey, Medicaid, you know, we can we can give this funding to pharmacists now because you can recognize them as a provider, whereas before that might have been more difficult. Yeah, that's right. And um, the key distinction that we wanted to draw from is that the pharmacist will be billing the service component, your your mind uh, and expertise component to the medical benefit of Medicaid. Um, they, if it results in a drug product being dispensed, you know, you'll still bill that as usual through a Medicaid claim for the drug product. But we really wanted to make sure that pharmacists were eligible and paid from the medical benefit because right. you're providing medical services when you're assessing patients and you're um, consulting at that level. That's beyond just a dispensing. So um, they will bill to the medical benefit for Medicaid for the service, and then they'll bill Medicaid for the drug product if there's one dispensed as well. Gotcha. That's great. Yeah. So kind of speaking about credentialing, um, you know, you're going to going back to your own training and whatnot. Um, you have a bachelor's of science in business administration and then a master's degree in uh, organizational development. Um, and then I've also been told that you are only um, one of 3000 people in the country um, who have received a uh, industry credential known as the certified association executive. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Can you? Um, I'm I'm actually not familiar with that, but it uh, sounds like it's a very hard thing to obtain. Can you give us some insight as to what kind of that entails? Yeah, sure. I, I, kind of in pharmacist terms, it's the BPS of pharmacy. Gotcha. The association okay. World. So, 
Yeah, so it requires a you know a certain years of experience and uh, an examination process. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, "Oh, how are you not a pharmacist and running the pharmacy association?" And you know, my response is, "Well, I run an association. I don't run a pharmacy." <laughs> uh, so you know, so much of what we do is you know po- political and strategic in terms of moving the profession forward um, at a treetop level. Um, I've got amazing members who really work at us, work with us at a clinical level if we have those questions. But our job is really to push the ball at a treetop level to move the whole profession forward, at least for our state. That's very cool. And I think that's something that I think a lot of, especially us as healthcare professionals, kind of take for granted because um, and now I get to see a little bit more that I'm the clinic that I'm in and I'm, I work in the same facility that a lot of our executives work in so I actually see the CFO mm-hmm. and the CEO and all that and so it, it reminds me of like oh yeah that some of the non-clinical things are important as well to kind of keep the lights on <laughs> so yeah, I can actually yeah. continue to have a job so it's it's good that uh, and it's it's really cool to see someone who isn't necessarily uh, on the clinical side still be really passionate about, you know, the profession and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. You know, I, I actually came to the Pharmacy Association, as you mentioned, back in, in 2010, right when the Affordable Care Act was being signed into law. And it was just a really exciting time because, you know, I had seen through my previous experiences that um, the system was not sustainable the way it was with primary care delivered in the manner we we had covered it or in the manner that we had delivered it previously. And, you know, it was sort of this um, train wreck coming down the pikes where we're going to give, you know, millions of more people across the country insurance cards and yet no providers to care for them. And so I really saw a pharmacist as an opportunity. Um, and, and you can see that in the result of our legislation of moving the profession into the space of really being those you know, faces of neighborhood health care, being the primary care at a, at a neighborhood level to provide those services. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was timing. You know, a lot of it was getting lucky. Uh, but hopefully we made a few smart decisions along the way as well to sort of position the profession correctly uh, for that opportunity that was coming. That's great. Yeah. And so the California Pharmacists Association, so every state has their own. We have South Carolina Pharmacists Association, uh, with, which me and Mike are actually involved in in, in an offhanded way. Um, but uh, CPHA is actually, I understand, the biggest of such associations um, across the country. Uh, so how, how do you see them? You know, I, I can, we, we see what programs and um, what, type, what CE and what certificate programs our state offers. Um, so how does CPHA benefit pharmacists in California? Because interestingly, we actually have a lot of California listeners, and we, we love our California listeners. Yeah, we found out we actually, when we were looking at the stats, we realized California is our number one downloaded state, which kind of awesome. hurt our feelings, South Carolina. Yeah, I know. Going on? Well, I guess California is also a very large state. So there's yeah, the, you guys probably have a lot more, uh, a lot more pharmacists. Yeah. A lot more pharmacists. But yeah, we were like, we live 10 minutes from the medical university, and you guys aren't listening. That's <laughs> kind of mean. <laughs> So yeah, um, we probably have more pharmacists than the, you have residents in your entire state. Uh, yeah, probably that, so. that, that is ratio, very uh, accurate, probably. <laughs> so, um, you know, what, what do you kind of see CPHA? How do you see it kind of going forward? Where do you see it going from where it is right now? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. The um, and we do collaborate with all of my colleagues across the country. As you mentioned, you know, Craig in South Carolina. We actually have a national group that's called the National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations, where we get together routinely about five times a year to talk about common issues around the profession, who's doing what in each state. Um, I happen to be the president this year for that organization. And it's just been a ripe opportunity to sort of. Um, uh, touch bases with all my colleagues. So, you know, certainly advocate for all state pharmacy associations. But as it relates to what we're doing here, um, you know, our, our goals are really twofold. One is to continue to ph position pharmacists in a way to provide clinical services in the setting in which they practice. So whether you're a community pharmacist or you're a hospital health system pharmacist or a compounder, whatever, um, we want to make sure that there are opportunities um, that we're paving the way for legislatively, regulatorily, payment-wise, um, that allow pharmacists to operate uh, for the future. Because I think as we all talk, and I mean we in terms of, you know, I'm sure your listeners and yourselves and uh, those of us across the country, you know, being a product-based profession only uh, is quickly coming to a financial end. Mm -hmm. um, really, when you look at the economics, right? I mean, there's just no more give on the product side. Yep. So, um our number one strategy is to is just to continue providing those opportunities for pharmacists to use their clinical skills, um, and then to get that paid for. You know, uh, pharmacists are very giving people, but you can't work for free. And the rest of the healthcare system has to recognize that from payers to Medicare to Medicaid um, to pay for those services that we're positioning for. Um, so that obviously involves a lot of advocacy, um, government relations, and lobbying at the legislative level here in the state. Um, as well as some congressional work um, uh, to move those, uh, you know, pull those levers and push those buttons to make sure that we can capitalize on those opportunities. That's that's definitely our number one strength, and I think our number one benefit for pharmacists to be involved uh, in our association as well as probably others across the country. Yeah, that really seems to be the biggest challenge because now that I think about it, on my fourth year rotations, I had at least two or three preceptors in a primary care setting, uh, doctors. Um, who were like, I would love to have a pharmacist in here. I just couldn't pay you the salary that you want, even if you took a lesser. Yeah. I, we just, we, there's no way for us to pay for it because it's tough for us to bill so and so to get you paid for. Yeah, that that is the biggest obstacle here, and it sounds like you guys are doing a good job of um, overcoming that. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, it's got to be part of the equation. We just can't be shy about that. We have to recognize that. Just as every other part of the healthcare healthcare system gets financed, we need to finance pharmacists' clinical services as well. Yeah, it's definitely definitely frustrating because I, I know with my diabetes education that I'm involved with at the clinic, you know, if I look through the actual list of people that Medicare considers like billable providers, whether it's secondary or primary, uh, you know, I'll see everything from the physician, dietitians, um, PT, I mean, just all kinds of things. And then it's just like pharmacists. Now nah, I'm like the kid uh, on the outside of the playground, kind of like looking at everybody else to have, have fun. <laughs> like, come on guys, yeah. let me play. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad that you guys are kind of leading the charge on that. I'm, yeah, it's definitely going to be some time, I think, but uh, moving in the right direction is very encouraging to see. So um, I'm curious to just kind of get your thoughts. Um, one of the things that Cole and I um, are fans of, obviously, with having the podcast and uh, using social media um, to kind of network with not only other healthcare professionals, but students as well. Um, we, especially on Instagram, we interact with a ton of students from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. And uh, I've 
really become a huge advocate for um, students responsibly using social media um, as a tool to kind of network and because we were always told, you know, you have to go to this conference and this uh, event or be a part of this organization. Otherwise, you'll never have the opportunity to meet uh, certain healthcare professionals. And I think those are still very important things. But now I think in 2019, we have so much untapped uh, potential with social media um, to network and really enhance whatever healthcare profession you're in. Um, do you kind of share that a little bit? I know that you know the organization is on things like Twitter and Instagram. Um, do you have a take on that? It, yeah, Mike, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that um, we have to be contemporary with the times, whether we're an association or whether we're healthcare providers or what have you. And uh, I mean, you guys are a great testament to that. I mean, just you know, look at the success you've had and congrats on your growth of just this podcast and sharing you know, great clinical and other information. Um, there's a need for it. And, you know, obviously, if the audience didn't find it of value, they wouldn't tune in. But they are and they're doing so in big numbers. So I think there's, you know, time over time, day over day, we can look at proof positive that we've got to be in those venues and communicating with our respective audiences, if you will, in that way. Um, I still think there is a value to that eyeball to eyeball um, type of networking and relationship building, particularly yeah, as healthcare providers. Um, but I, I think that you can't just now rely on the 1976 model of the association where, you know, all you could do is go to a conference mm -hmm. and meet some people and then go home and get back to your, to your job. Mm -hmm. um, there's these beautiful avenues in social media that we can connect people in many different ways. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I'm just I, I still see uh, certain universities. Um, I'm glad to see that my, you know, my school uh, is really taking advantage of some of the social media stuff. But I see some universities encouraging people to just delete their accounts like, no, you need to stay off that completely. Get it. Get everything um, personal off there in case you, the residency program or something sees something they shouldn't. My thought has always been, OK, well, why is there something on your Instagram profile that shouldn't be there in the first place? <laughs> like that, feel like right, that's right. a red flag. And then, you know, too, I feel like that just completely cuts off such a good opportunity that we have if you're using it responsibly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You do have to wonder if you if you have to go clean up your Instagram feed uh, before you apply for a job, that should probably tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> right. It should it definitely tell you you've made some not great decisions, probably. <laughs> Yeah, which isn't to say that, um, you know, conferences aren't important and valuable because you guys have one coming up soon, right? So it's the West. segue. Yeah, I, I can do that Ooh. sometimes, you know. We're basically, that was a good call. I like that. I appreciate <laughs> it. We're basically professionals now. So, uh, But yeah, so it's the Western Pharmacy Exchange coming up middle of next month in April. Uh, it's the 12th to the 14th. Um, but uh, why don't you give us a little information about what's going on there? Yeah, thanks, Cole. I appreciate the tee up. So, um <laughs> As I was saying, I, I, there is value to that eyeball to eyeball, you know, whether it's for CE or whether it's relationship building or networking for residency or for your first job um, as a student. Um, our Western Pharmacy Exchange is our annual education and networking opportunity. Um, we're really doing some innovative things. I mean, talking, Mike, about social media, we're trying to do some of that same sort of um, paradigm and a uh, 
educational delivery space. So for example, um, we're moving into a whole new education delivery model at the conference. So it's not going to be just walking into a set of breakout sessions and looking at a speaker, you know, going on with their slides about X, Y, and Z topic. We're actually utilizing a, a main room with some sports radio technology and learning zones and, you know, keynote sessions, bringing A-list celebrities and um, really trying to create that experience. Um, because as just as you mentioned in social media, there's sort of that craving for connecting in different ways. Um, you know, I have the opportunity to travel around the country, you know, and my colleagues in other states and nationally and go to a lot of pharmacy conferences and they do an amazing job putting those on. But the one thing is that they're very predictable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a negative. It's just sort of it is what it is. And so we really wanted to change the thought process for um, that social media crowd, and it's just not students, it's young practitioners and middle-aged practitioners as well, to create this experience where they come to a conference, yeah, they're going to get some CE, yeah, they're going to network some, with some folks as is traditional, but they're going to do so in a way that really creates um, almost a festival vibe um, so that they really uh, gain that experience from participating, not just showing up. So we're trying to innovate in that way and push the envelope and do some neat new things, and so We'd certainly invite any of your listeners to come on out and uh, to join us in Los Angeles for a beautiful week in mid-April and, and experience what that's all about. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some of the schedule, you know, the lineup of the conference, and uh, it's it's pretty impressive. It looks like it's going to be a really, really good conference. I'm, I kind of wish it wasn't across the country because <laughs> I would be, be there in a heartbeat. Um, what... Uh, what are some kind of, you know, things people can expect to see there? Can you give us, a, you know, you started to kind of talk about some of the new innovative learning approaches. Can you tell us about any of the topics or anything like that that are going to be covered? Yeah, so one of the um, uh, strategies that we have in delivering uh, the educational component is to really do twofold. One is we're really focused on student pharmacists and providing content that's relative to them. So, you know, it may be interesting to go into, you know, a, a clinical CE on hypertension. Um, but rather than doing that, we've created some very specific student-centric sessions that really talk about where they are in their place in life. So getting ready for a job, how to interview for a residency, um, how to be effective in uh, you know, presenting your uh, resume or things of that nature. So really kind of meeting the, the pharmacist or student pharmacist where they're at in their life stage and their practice stage. Um, so some really cool, innovative, and, and, and I think very topical uh, items for students. And then on the clinical side as well, looking at not only what is sort of the latest breaking information for different disease states, uh, but also talking to pharmacists, for example, about how to bill for medical services, how to have a conversation with a physician about a collaborative practice agreement or a health plan or a health center. Um, so speaking to those issues that are core, and that's some of the clinical content, but then also more horizontal, which is those issues around the expansion of scope and clinical services and, and uh, how you incorporate this in your practice. Yeah, I think that's super important too is I think there's a tendency for student, at least the students that I've worked with and, and, and practitioners as well. But um, because we don't have that provider status and whatnot, um, I feel like there's a tendency to almost have like a defensive, you know, block up. And so we, we kind yeah. of approach things aggressively with, with the provider sometimes and, and, 
instead of coming at it from a more, much more humble approach, coming at it like, you know, oh, I'm super valuable. I'm the drug expert. How can you not see mm-hmm. how valuable I am? Um, but yeah. ha- really educating, you know, students in the, when they're catching them before they even get in, you know, into the room with a physician or another provider uh, and, and explaining how to have that conversation and, and prove the, the value that you can bring in a respectful way, I, I think is super important. Yeah, because we, we know that we have, we have something to prove. We have to prove that we know what we're talking about, but we also have to build trust. Mm-hmm. The provider is going to want to have mm-hmm. trust with you and coming in all, you know, hot and heavy and uh, with, with all, the, all the info and all the trials, just throwing it at them and trying to, you know, correct what they're doing. Um, having, yeah. having a conversation about how to, how to steer those. And a lot of that is just, you know, knowing how to deal with people and, and knowing uh, people in general. But yeah, just mm-hmm. putting that out there and making people a little more self-aware of that is, is definitely valuable. Yeah, you know, the other thing that we've learned as these um, various uh, scope expansions have gotten into play is that uh, we're also reminded by our members that this is new. And so they have questions around workflow and how do they incorporate this in their pharmacy? And, you know, do they hire another pharmacist part time to do these things or do they incorporate it within their current, you know, uh, prescription filling process? And, you know, how do I, uh, how do I have that physician conversation and what should a collaborative practice include and not include? So there's a lot of tactical, almost more business centric questions that come about. And so we've started, started to try to provide some education around that as well as um, understanding it's fine to have a law that allows you to do this stuff. And it's fine that there's a law that allows you to get paid for this stuff. But at some point, you got to walk through the pharmacy door and actually do it. And that's not always simple. Uh, and so some of that business-oriented, uh, front-facing um, mechanics, I guess you would call them, is, is a barrier that we're, we're starting to address. Yeah, absolutely. So is the, the Western Pharmacy Exchange, that, you know, is this conference something that's geared more towards students? Is it geared more towards pharmacists or is it of a certain role? Um, who's the target audience or is it really something for everybody? It really is something for everybody. Um, as I mentioned, we have a, a student-centric piece. Um, we actually also have a pharmacy technician-centric piece where we have a, mm. a, on Saturday That's cool. um, a sessions just for pharmacy technicians and you know how does their role fit into the new horizon for what pharmacy looks like because that's an important pl- important player in the whole puzzle. Yeah. Um, and then you know certainly for our core pharmacists, you know those pharmacists are maybe a year or two out of school all the way through you know 20 years in practice I think everybody can achieve something out of that um, and uh, and get real value from participating yeah that's great um, so you said it was April 12th to 14th um, what uh, can, can I ask what uh, kind of cost it um, in case the listeners are looking into going yeah, absolutely. So um, actually, just for you guys, we're doing a, a special listener deal um, that if somebody wants to come out to L.A. and join us in mid-April, um, we're discounting the, the registration rate um, for Western Pharmacy Exchange. Um, not only are we going to give them our member rate, but also 150 bucks off. So it'll be 645 for the conference, and that includes everything. Um, but that's just for uh, the core consultant listener. So you got to call our office uh, to take advantage of that. Mm, that's a steal, guys. Yeah, <laughs> Just I like for that. listening to us. There you uh, go. Yeah, yeah, and it better be a handwritten thank you note to uh, Mr. Roth there for $150 <laughs> off. That's pretty generous. 
No, that's awesome. Thank you for, for doing that for our listeners. It's something we, we, we greatly appreciate that as well. Just, you know, we're, we're thankful that even one person listens to our podcast. So having something to give back like that helps us tremendously too. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And all they need to do to claim that mic is, is just call Sheila Johnson in our office. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys put up show notes, but we can certainly give you the number, which is area code 916-779-4507. Again, Sheila Johnson at 916-779-4507. And uh, she'll hook your, your folks up. Great. Sounds awesome. good. And yeah, I definitely will put the... Uh, um, phone number in the in the notes as well so make sure everyone has a chance to, to do that as well as um, you know we'll make sure we put it on Instagram and all the other platforms to give people the opportunity to to take advantage of that awesome thank you so um, you know I, I don't want to take too much more of your time but um, if you, what are your thoughts as far as the pharmacist who's been practicing for several years um, anytime there's a big shift you know in a a profession or you know someone's actual career there's always going to be a little bit of pushback just because it's it's intimidating to go through a big change especially something like going from just completely a dispensing model to a significantly more clinical route um what what would be some advice kind of since you've been at the forefront of this what are some what's some advice you have for some of the older pharmacists who are kind of like trying to figure out where to go from here and how to kind of get back in the swing of the clinical realm yeah, that's a really important consideration that we've talked a lot about. Um, and, and I think the advice would be this, Mike, that, you know, if a pharmacist is open to learning, uh, continuous learning and building competencies in their career and their profession, uh, I, I anticipate they'll warmly embrace these opportunities. But, you know, probably just like we saw during the immunization ramp up, uh, there are those pharmacists who, you know, want to just simply safely dispense medicine. And that's really their sweet spot and they don't want to do anything else. And, and that's what they're going to do for their career. And I think there will be a place for those folks. Um, granted, I think those places are getting narrower and narrower as you look at things such as mail order and other delivery mechanisms that are dispensing medicines beyond just the pharmacist handing it out. Um, and so uh, I, I think if a, if a listener is, is concerned about wanting to learn a new skill set and sort of going into this brave new frontier, um, they just have to understand that from a career choice standpoint, that may limit their options. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, if they're, if they're open to, you know, opening their own pharmacy or even working, you know, for a pharmacy who embraces these concepts, uh, and they want to be open to continual learning. I think there's a, a really bright future for those those folks. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely agree too. Um, in, in kind of you know, in closing, um, where where do you kind of see the big push as far as like yeah, we hear a lot of people talking about um, this idea of like uniting pharmacists together and things like that. Uh, you know, it's which is always easier said than done because you know everyone has their own um, specialty that they're working in. Um, everyone has their own interests and you know branding and whatever else you want to call it. But um, how do you see kind of the whole separate but united thing playing out? If that if that makes sense, of that way I ask that question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I get it, um, Mike. You know, certainly there are you know the different. Um, 
interest areas in pharmacy practice. We have, you know, all of our national colleagues, and even at the state level, we have our special interest groups, for example, here at CPHA. Based on your practice setting, you affiliate with pharmacists that are like you. And I think there's definitely a role for that. You know, uh, there are very practice-centric issues we need to be working on, uh, probably mostly clinical um, uh, or delivery-wide, uh, meaning delivering the healthcare in that particular pharmacy practice setting. Uh, but I think there's also those transcend transcending issues, uh, those treetop issues that we're working on that really move the whole profession forward, regardless of practice setting. And I think that's where you know we see this at the federal level with the Coalition for Provider Status. You know, all the national pharmacy associations are sort of rowing in one direction to get that done. Um, at the state level, um, while it may show up differently based on our politics and such. Um, we're all moving that ball forward as well. So I think there are uniting issues and, and the fact that we can focus on those and streamline our resources and our energies to accomplish those, I think will be in great, great form. Um, and then where it comes down to practice specific issues, you know, we need to make a home for those folks as well and, and tackle those more tangible issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one one more quick question, if you don't mind. Um, you, sure. Since you, you're running these big conferences and obviously you have to bring in uh, innovative and kind of forward-thinking speakers and whatnot, what do you look for as someone who puts on one of these conferences? Because I, I, we have a lot of students, and I like to think Cole and I are a little ambitious as well, but we have a lot of students that are really, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to change the game, if you will. Um, what do you look for when you're looking for, okay, this person, we want to have come and be a part of the conference, not just as a visitor, but, you know, as a speaker or somebody that's involved directly with it? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of using the term innovation. Um, we're really looking for, um, those students or those pharmacists who are innovating in their practice. And those can be big innovations or they can be small innovations. They don't all have to be, you know, uh, top of the world type things that, that um, roll up into something major. Um, but if you're doing something unique and interesting and innovative that sort of aligns with sort of this future vision of the profession, we'd love to have you come speak for our group. And I think others would as well, um, because that's the type of information we want our members to, to know, and we think they need to know that because that's the direction that we're certainly pushing in overall. Yeah, it sounds like y'all are. I do. Well, yeah. um, you know, in a year or so from now, when we have it perfected. We're working on uh, doing virtual reality, not only podcasts, but also uh, topic discussions and things like that. So we can kind of be in the same room together, uh, whether it's with, a, you know, an Oculus Rift or Oculus Go or any of the virtual reality components. We're, we're trying to go pretty hard with that. Um, we have two episodes now in VR. Mm -hmm. So we'll, uh, we'll keep wow. you posted if we get more innovative than that, but that's our, that's our focus right now. Cause I think that'd be pretty, pretty cool to kind of be in the same room across the country. That is very awesome. Yeah. I want to be the first in line when you guys get that rolled out. <laughs> yeah. It sounds good. Um, Mr. Roth, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this with us today. Um, anything do you want to say in closing or, you know, you're welcome to, you know, give your final thoughts, plug anything you may want to plug or let people know what's going on. No, I just appreciate it. Gentlemen, thank you for the time and, and for the interest. Um, uh, these are great conversations to have and uh, congratulations again on all your success and, and hopefully we will uh, uh, talk soon. Absolutely. Sounds we appreciate good. you coming on. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. 
Um, for the thank listeners, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, make sure you give us a rating and subscribe. It helps us out tremendously. Uh, we hit 100 ratings on iTunes, so thank you guys so much for that. And uh, we're still uh, doing okay in the the star rankings. Uh, so I definitely, definitely appreciate all the, the listeners and the support we're getting. Um, if we can do anything to improve, uh, our emails will be in the show notes. Um, if you have any ideas for topics, um, suggestions at all, please reach out to us and, uh, we will catch you guys next time. See ya.